It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Prince, the music icon, was captured on canvas by Andy Warhol, the artist icon, in a series of 12 silkscreen portraits. Warhol used a photo of Prince by photographer Lynn Goldsmith as the source material. The legal battle over the Prince series didn't begin for some 30 years. Goldsmith sued the Warhol Foundation and just last month convinced the Second Circuit that Warhol had infringed her photo of Prince. Now the foundation wants another chance to argue its case. Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. So, Terry, tell us about the litigation history here. The district court found that fair use did apply to this case and ruled in favor of the Warhol Foundation and dismissed the case of Ms. Goldsmith that there had been a copyright infringement. She then appealed, and the Second Circuit reversed the district court and frankly was a little bit critical of the way the district court had reached its fair use conclusion, stating that the district court had in fact played art critic. And by analyzing the contested work from sort of an art criticism point of view, had been able to reach a decision that the work was transformative. And the Second Circuit thought that that was the wrong approach and therefore overturned the decision of the district court, held that there was no fair use here, and rendered a decision in favor of the plaintiff, Ms. Goldsmith, finding that there was copyright infringement. I don't want to play art critic, but when you compare the photograph to Warhol's silk screens, it's hard for me to understand how the court didn't find this to be transformative. He's known for doing these kind of pieces, transforming ordinary things into extraordinary things. And the Orange Prince is considered an important work of his. How is this not transformative? Well, your comment is particularly true when one reflects upon the previous Second Circuit decision in the Prince versus Carew case. In that case, photographs of Rastafarians in Jamaica were taken and guitars were added, drawn in, and various other almost doodles were added to the photograph. And in that case, the Second Circuit found that that was transformative. In light of that case, it's hard to 
see an intellectually principled rationale for finding in the Goldsmith case that there was no transformative element. I think the issue here is really a split within the Second Circuit itself amongst the judges of the Second Circuit as to how expansive the fair use principle should be. And the broader the view you have of the fair use doctrine, the more one is likely to find transformative use. And conversely, the less expansive one believes fair use should be, the less likely one is likely to find transformative use. And I think that's really what's going on behind the scenes in this case and is playing out in this Second Circuit decision. So a week after the Second Circuit decision, the Supreme Court comes out with the Google Oracle decision. Tell us what happened after that. The Second Circuit said, oops, let us rethink this. So the foundation very quickly filed a motion for reconsideration or in the alternative for an en banc review of the decision. So the Second Circuit decision here, finding that there was no fair use, was rendered by a three-judge panel. The defendants are essentially saying that in light of the Google versus Oracle case, a significant change in the law has occurred, and that therefore the Second Circuit as a whole, all of the judges of the Second Circuit, not just the three judges of the panel, should reconsider this case and determine how the Google versus Oracle Supreme Court decision impacts this specific appeal. Explain just basically the Google versus Oracle decision. Google versus Oracle was a very long-running and complicated copyright infringement dispute involving the copying of certain code by Google in order to allow the development of Android devices. The types of code copies were what are known as APIs. It allows developers to develop and implement functionality around the Java system that Oracle developed and owned. And the Supreme Court decided that the use by Google of these portions of the Java code, the API, was fair use and therefore did not constitute copyright infringement. It was widely regarded as the most important decision in copyright law in the context of computer programming that has ever been rendered. So how would that affect the Warhol case? Well, that's a great question, Jim. On its face. I'm hard-pressed to see how it would impact the Warhol case. The court, Justice Breyer, writing on behalf of six of the eight justices who participated, was very careful to distinguish relatively early in his decision that this case was focused on computer software. Justice Breyer notes that there are sui generis elements to this decision that really apply only to computer programs. And in that sense, I am hard-pressed to see what the Second Circuit finds of interest in Google versus Oracle vis-a-vis Goldsmith versus the Warhol Foundation. Terry, the Second Circuit rarely grants on-bank hearings. So why do you think they're even considering it in this case? So, June, to put this in context, the Second Circuit grants on-bank review in a typical year in fewer than 5% of its cases. And there are years in which it has granted only one or two en banc reviews. And typically, an en banc review is granted where there has been a significant, one would call it almost a sea change in the law that has taken place that the Second Circuit feels has to weigh in on, or 
an issue of first impression that is of such importance that the court as a whole has to weigh in on it. In that sense, it's hard for me to understand how this particular case fits that criteria. I don't view Google versus Oracle as changing the law of fair use. The four factors that are applied were not changed by the Supreme Court. And indeed, the manner in which they articulated the four factors that courts are to consider in fair use cases was relatively typical of past decisions by Supreme Court and the circuit courts, including the Second Circuit. What one has to believe is going on here is that this internal split within the judges' Second Circuit is being played out in this Goldsmith versus Andy Warhol Foundation case. There is a group of judges in the Second Circuit, which, by the way, pioneered the notion of a transformative factor in fair use. But there is this faction within the court that believes that fair use should be expansively interpreted. And I believe that they view the Google versus Oracle case as similarly expressing an expansive view of fair use. I don't think that that is a fair view of the Google versus Oracle case. And therefore, that is why I believe that the court has asked for this additional briefing with respect to the Oracle versus Google case. And I would not be surprised if even after the briefing, Second Circuit denied uh, on bank review. Uh, remember, it takes a majority of the judges of the Second Circuit to order an on bank review. And I'm not sure that there is a majority of judges who are willing to, um, to, to grant, grant it here. Did the art world or the intellectual property world find the Second Circuit's decision surprising? So, Jim, we've talked in the past about fair use and copyright as being like a pendulum that swings back and forth based on perceptions of public opinion. The Prince versus Crew case out of the Second Circuit from a few years ago sort of represented a swing dramatically in favor of a liberal interpretation of fair use. And since that time, we've seen the pendulum swinging back the other way toward a more traditional and slightly more challenging view of the fair use doctrine. One of the things that has happened and has not been noted by the media with respect to the passing of Justice Ginsburg is the dramatic change that meant for the Supreme Court and copyright law. Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg represented the two antipodes of copyright and fair use doctrine in American jurisprudence. And while the media is focused on how Justice Ginsburg's passing might impact so-called political cases in which there's a conservative or a liberal block at issue, they failed to note the change it's had on copyright law. And as soon as you saw that Justice Breyer wrote this decision in Oracle versus Google, you knew that it was going to be a victory for Google and a finding that fair use was justified because he has always, since he was a professor at Harvard Law School, supported an expansive view of fair use, whereas Justice Ginsburg has always, in her decisions, supported a much more limited view of fair use and has been a strong supporter of copyright law. And her absence from the court, not just as a vote, but as the intellectual bedrock for that view of copyright law is sorely missed. And it's really reflected in this Google versus Oracle case, where we see the expansive use, fair use now predominating, and Justice Breyer being able to obtain five other votes for his position, several of which I don't think would have been there if Justice Ginsburg had been on the court to articulate and advocate 
for a tougher view of copyright infringement. And we now see that being played out in the Second Circuit as well, with the judges there who favor more expansive view of fair use doctrine attempting to seize upon the sea shift at the Supreme Court to argue for a comparable shift in Second Circuit law. In real life, what does this decision mean to the photographer here? So it depends on what the Second Circuit decides if it grants on bond review. If it decides to overrule the panel decision, then the Andy Warhol Foundation is off the hook, doesn't have to negotiate anything with the photographer. If they decide not to take the case on bond or to take it on bond and then continue to affirm the finding of no fair use, then it would move to a damages stage. And she's asked for very significant damages and don't really have a view on whether that's valid or not. But we would have to go back to the district court for a jury trial on what the proper damages for the infringement are in this case. You ask about what the practical impact of these decisions uh, in the art world are. And it, it, the, the answer is real simple. It's complete confusion. <laughs> Um, it is it is really hard to understand when fair use applies and when it does not, given these decisions, which often seem to be based on the whim of whoever the judge or judges reviewing the competing works have. You just, as a practicing lawyer, find it very challenging to counsel artists or someone who wishes to make use of an, another artist's work. It's just very hard to tell them where the line is drawn for fair use anymore. That said, again, I repeat, the Google versus Oracle case, I believe, does not impact artworks, specifically because Justice Breyer says at the beginning of his decision that computer programs really have to be treated differently than literary works, such as movies, books, films, and artwork. Thanks, Terry. That's Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. West Virginia has been called ground zero of the opioid epidemic. At a hearing on Capitol Hill two years ago, lawmakers grilled drug distributors about the millions of opioids sent to small towns in West Virginia. Here's former Republican Congressman Greg Harper of Mississippi. The number of opioids shipped to pharmacies in small towns in West Virginia has been astonishing. Nearly 800 million opioids in total distributed to West Virginia in just a five-year period. 20.8 million opioids to Williamson and nearly 17 million opioids to a single pharmacy in Mount Gay Shamrock over a decade. A landmark trial over the opioid crisis kicked off this week in West Virginia. As the three largest U.S. drug distributors are facing claims they fuel the opioid crisis by dumping nearly 100 million pills into the region over a decade. Joining me is Richard Osnes, a professor at the University of Kentucky Law School. So the plaintiffs are using a public nuisance theory. Tell us a little bit about that. This has been sort of the favorite theory of most of the litigants in these opioid cases. There's one, as you know, going on in California, and I believe it's also based on public nuisance. And, of course, the Oklahoma case was. What public nuisance involves is 
some kind of activity that interferes with a public right that is a right held in common by the general public. Is this an unusual use of the nuisance theory? Has it mainly been used in cases involving property or pollution disputes, things like that? I believe it is. A number of governmental entities have used public nuisance in lead paint, handguns, asbestos, and other products, and they've used them in other drug cases too, not involving opioids. Now, it hasn't been overly successful in part because, as you point out, traditionally at least public nuisance has involved either a violation of statute or interference with either the plaintiff's use of his or her land or some activity on the land of the defendant, and neither of those really apply in this case, it seems to me. The plaintiffs are going to call all kinds of witnesses, expert witnesses, Mm -hmm. local leaders, people who have been personally affected by substance abuse. What do the plaintiffs have to prove to make out their case? Well, I think a lot of that is just theater, political theater. The real issue, at least initially, is is there a public nuisance? And that means it interferes, at least in most states, with a right held in common by the public. So the fact that certain individuals have been injured is neither here nor there, in my opinion. But, of course, it makes for good theater, so they're going to trot them all out and get as much leverage as they can. Now, that doesn't work quite as well when it's a bench trial than if it were a jury trial, but it's not only aimed at the judge, it's aimed at the news media and the general public. The defendant drug distributors are pointing in other directions for their defense. Illegal drugs, doctors, hospitals, drug companies. Well, I think being distributors, they're going to say, hey, we didn't sell drugs, at least not to the general public, and we didn't particularly advertise them in the way that the manufacturers did. And it's kind of a causation argument. They're going to try to say, we didn't cause the problem or or our contribution was minimal, that these other groups are far more culpable than, than we are. And I think that's a decent argument, certainly. One of the problems with the way these cases are going is they single out one group when they're a whole host of potential wrongdoers doing different things. You know, you've got the manufacturers, you've got the distributors, and you've got the retail sellers, and then obviously you've got criminal black market people too. There's a lot of blame to go around. And so by focusing on just one group, you give them the chance to say, hey, you're going after the wrong people. Go after these other people. So far, it hasn't worked. It certainly didn't work in the Johnson & Johnson case, and I don't know if it'll work very well in this case either. Why didn't the plaintiffs here sue the distributors and the drug companies in the same case? Well, I think they did originally, but um, the thing about these bellwether trials is they're trying to sort of um, focus on on a fairly narrow issues and get a decision that isn't cluttered up by a lot of other things. Uh, So it makes a certain amount. uh, I I think they could go back and sue these other uh, parties if they wanted to. But uh, at least in theory, the purpose of these bellwether trials is to try to get some sense of how strong or weak the cases are, uh, which gives, of course, both the plaintiffs and the defendants some information, um, not only about whether they're liable or not, but how much the case is worth, you know, what the size of the award should be in in other cases. But, you know, one thing about um, uh, having said that 
you know, this is a significant case, which it is, uh, in, in it's typical to have many bellwether cases, especially in a, in a area this important. Um, I believe it was the Vioxx case where they had like 16 or 17 bellwether trials. Um, you know, that gives you a lot more information than just a single decision, regardless of which way it goes. So then would you say the plaintiffs have the advantage in this case? Well, I would say just because of the optics that the defendants are in bad shape. Now, this, of course, is a federal court, so maybe it won't be quite as bad. But West Virginia was notorious for being plaintiff-oriented, the state courts. And that's probably a good reason for not having a jury that might be influenced. But, you know, the consequences have been so terrible in West Virginia that, I mean, just everywhere you go, you've got evidence of a serious addiction problem. And they're going to put on witness after witness saying how terrible everything is. That's a tough argument to overcome, uh, which is why they have been settling these cases on an individual basis. And I think the fact that the Oklahoma court awarded so much money, I mean, you know, that's a lot of money, $470 million. The stakes are pretty high. So the defendants are, I think, up against it. And I think their chances of winning are better on appeal than they probably are at trial, which is not to say they're that good on appeal. The distributors and Johnson & Johnson, the drug maker, have proposed a global settlement. What are the chances of that? You know, unlike the tobacco litigation where you had six defendants, I believe it was, you know, you could work with six defendants and they all did the same thing. Whereas here you have the distributors making one argument, the manufacturers making another and the retail sellers making yet another. So you've got a lot of parties and their interests are not parallel. So it's tough to get everybody in the room and come up with something like the tobacco settlement. Thanks, Richard. That's Richard Austin of the University of Kentucky Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.